okay, we were talking about voice. Well, I was thinking, like, of course, women, we have, we sort of learn, we don't, we don't have this natural voice. I think we just learn to speak in a high way to make ourselves seem unthreatening. Hmm. It's the same way we learn, like, the up talk and the, the vocal fry. We cultivate this kind of unthreatening, vulnerable way of speaking so that we end up sounding like 12-year-old boys. <laughs> Not on purpose, just because seems like we must be rewarded by it. Is it in the same way that cats develop the, the certain sound exactly. of meow that, that makes us pay attention because it has a, the right pitch and the right... And the right uh, exactly. Yeah. Like there is probably a reason that we don't have a deep, a deep commanding voice that commands respect because it's easier to be... Basically people... By people, I mean men... <laughs> will help us more if we seem helpless. And you want that. Well, I mean, <laughs> part of us wants that and part of us don't. It just gets kind of embarrassing once you reach middle age and you've cultivated this voice. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to try to cultivate a deep voice. It sounds, it feels very unnatural. <laughs> and I tried to think of a woman who's done that famously. And I thought of this, I remember this woman, Elizabeth Holmes. Do you remember her? The name's familiar. What, uh, what was she in? She started this company and she became a billionaire and she was like one of the most, um, wait, is this, she is was this on, the, the blood testing? Yeah. yeah. What was the yes. name of that company? Um, right. Sounds it was pretty sinister sounding. Um, yeah, I'm um, totally blanking. But yeah. They, yeah, Theranos. Theranos. That's it. Theranos. And she ha had this very, very deep voice, very strange sounding kind of. And she was kind of maligned for the, I mean, as well as, you know, ripping off a great deal of people and being a big fraud in her business. She was uh, maligned for having a fake voice. And there was a lot of like this sort of gotcha journalism in which she was talking and she would like in some videos, she would be caught re going back to her original quote unquote authentic or mm -hmm. natural voice, which was more high. So she would and break her kind of trained business voice and, and, and going to kind of a more natural speech pattern. Yeah. And uh, so there were experts on the, the media machine talking about how this is a... Um, to tell. Yes, and it's a symptom or a sign of sociopathy, mm. that she is a sociopath because she is able to transform her voice mm. into this other well, wouldn't thing. Wouldn't this make every kind of actor, every, every media person that speaks in the media kind of a sociopath because they all transform their voice. You know, they all have trained voices. Or anyone who moves to England and like starts to acquire an English <laughs> accent or anyone who moves away from the South and starts to learn to modulate their voice in order to blend in with the others. I, I do, I've done that a lot. I, I'm kind of a, when I've, when I'm travel when I was traveling in, in Europe, there was like a two month trip that I took when I was in college and uh, whenever I was in a different country my accent would kind of shift just slightly to kind of accommodate the local speakers and it was like just kind of this like auto mimic I was doing well this is probably a survival thing that you particularly have taken on because you see I am a speech psychologist <laughs> now but because of being 
this child of immigrants and you you moved from what Poland to Germany yeah, to yeah. the States. And so you had to integrate. You probably had to learn early on to be a sort of chameleon. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I, I remember in, in high school just really trying to to sound like I didn't have an accent, like not super consciously, but just practicing it, you know, in my head. It's like, oh, I'm saying it wrong. Like and, and it wasn't like I need to sound really correct or whatever, but it was just very much becoming kind of conscious of, of me pronouncing things the wrong way. So then I would, but then, you know, but then I'm also like very consciously not pronouncing things correctly. Like when I was in France, I would just acquire a French accent, you know, not like super, super tight, but like for certain words or whatever, I would just start kind of inflecting that, you know, kind of mimicking the, the French speakers who were speaking English to me. Your, your adaptation skills. Yeah. I guess that it makes sense. You know, you just like you, you're in a population and you kind of want to integrate in some way and, and feel like you're part of that society or part of that group or part of that tribe. In one way, you don't have a very strong personality <laughs> or you could look at it in another way in that you have the kind of personality that integrates everything that it touches. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll let everybody else be the judge of whether I have or don't have a personality <laughs> or not. Just don't start talking like me. That would be a disaster. Tell me when I'm when I'm when, it's, when, it, when start- it feels like you're talking to a mirror. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I guess that'd be kind of cool if I actually started talking like you and I learned Polish and German as well and became a successful publisher and you just kind of wasted away in New York City. <laughs> we're, we're reenacting Dorian Gray where, you know, one gets older, one gets, except we're just flipping roles here. Yeah. So like you're a paint, you're a painting of me I guess I just actually watched that movie I mean I read the book a long time ago my takeaway from the that book is that having wrinkles means that you are evil (laughs) which is interesting old is evil the young is good yeah haven't we been kind of in this mode for a while and 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 least in the west you know the sort of the cult of youth and the cult of yeah but that's like it's directly says it and i mean it really is much more aimed at women like women should have a clear face Mm -hmm. no wrinkles because we want to look like angels (laughs) pay for men to have some wrinkles because they they're sinners (laughs) they're scoundrels right we've been scarred by our struggles yeah you you men you you have earned your wrinkles whereas as women our wrinkles are our punishments your curse our albatross (laughs) thought you were gonna go there with this thought to your autobiographical comics if you look at your comics from when you started until now are they kind of a, a dorian gray portrait as you as you age where you where you kind of acquire new wrinkles so to speak um you know in terms of uh, your own you know new quirks as a cartoonist new ideas new uh, new lines new ways of drawing new ways of portraying yourself I don't know, but I started drawing lines on my face. (laughs) I try to make them look cool. (laughs) I do feel like, yes, I think there's something to that. Like I'm stuck in my um, identity. It is this thing that follows me and people read my comics and think that that's how I am. And then when they talk to me, you know, they project that on me. And then that projection makes me behave that way. So I, I... 
I keep myself in this holding pattern. That's not exactly how it works with Dorian Gray, though. Yeah, but there's some parallel there, right? There's like, um, tell me if I'm wrong, where you have to fit a certain model of yourself versus like the reality, right? Like the sort of what you are in real life. You know, there's always like a push and pull between between what you show or you don't show in terms of your comics. Like, all I'm trying to do is not be boring. My biggest fear is, like, constantly repeating myself, and that's actually what I do. (laughs) But um, I'm trying to give myself, but, like, a not boring part of myself, like, maybe refined version of myself. Like, I boil myself down and offer up, like, the finest sediment that is remaining. But it's not me. I'm this horrible, (laughs) walking 12-year-old old boy being punched with her own <laughs> fist by this bully. I mean, like, I'm so messy in real life. And I mean, my comics are messy too, but it's like a, a cleaner version of... mess. <laughs> I think every artist on some level repeats themselves. That's just something we do. We have our sort of obsessions and interests. And, you know, even if we feel like we've worked through something, a lot of times we'll come back to it a few years later and not even realize that we're just kind of treading the same territory again. Oh my God, it's a nightmare. Is it a nightmare? Is it sort of like, uh, you know, Nietzschean eternal return? What is, wait, I've heard this of the Nietzschean eternal return before I, on another podcast <laughs> somewhere. And I've heard different yeah, ways. There's, I mean, there's a lot of um, different ways to look at it. A lot of times, you know, one of the sort of main interpretations maybe is um, thinking about it as, you know, living your life as if you had to kind of relive it again. Mm-hmm. And then would you be okay sort of living that moment again? So you're supposed to live your life as if you had to relive it again. And would you would you have regrets next time around if you were doing this or that? And I think everybody probably has the regrets on some level. But, uh, you know, this is just kind of a way to think about it. Wait, wait, wait. this is pretty heavy. So... <laughs> Living your life as if you're just rehearsing? Is that what you, what you mean? Like No, no. I just I just mean like if you had to live your life all over again, exactly the same way. So, okay. Do I remember my original life? Do I remember the life that I just lived through, assuming all the way to my death? Or I guess I do remember, right? Um, I mean, I, I think some of this stuff is a little hazy, but uh, I'm assuming you do remember your previous life and you're essentially reliving it again and... Okay, so I'm Gabrielle. I spent my life doing comics (laughs) and wasted a lot of time ruminating over things I shouldn't have. And I died just a tiny bit smarter than I was before. I don't know. And so I start over again and I'm a baby and I have the same mom and the same dad and the same exact life. And at some point, maybe around four or five, I start having the consciousness that it, that I remember. Mm-hmm. So do I remember all this stuff before? <laughs> yeah. Would you? I mean, you know, a lot of it is about regrets, right? Is, is it are you living your life the way if you had to live it over again, would you hate it or would you be OK with it? It's a little bit of a thought experiment because obviously you're not just imagine like having to kind of relive everything that you've done so far. Would you would there be moments where you're just like, um, I wish I had gone in a different direction or done something different? Or if you had to live it over again, even if you did the wrong thing, you'd still be like, you know, but I did the best I could under the circumstances. Okay, if I could start my life over, I wouldn't become a cartoonist. (laughs) I would be a performer. I would be a musician or like an actor or a podcaster. That's interesting. (laughs) Are you saying that um, in your comics, you're essentially performing? 
Is this kind of a way to perform? Yes. And I think that like performing, like I would like to, um, you know, sing and dance and be in the world with my body moving in the world and interacting with people. Comics sort of are this huge layer in between me and all the other people. Like I, I have to sort of like go away and ruminate and create something and then show that thing to other people and then go away while the, those people process that thing that I created. And it's, I'm very divorced. The work is very divorced from myself. Whereas somebody who performs like in music, like I think I said that before last week, like music is like you're in time, you're in the moment, you're in, you're in it. It's happening at the moment. Something about that is far more, um, it seems just more complete. However, I did try very hard when I was a teenager to learn to play guitar and I was a disaster <laughs> at it. Never improved. And I was always improving as an artist and as a writer. I also even tried to do acting and I was sometimes good at acting, but I was so shy that I couldn't sell myself in that way. I really had to hide behind my my work, but it was almost like a, a crutch or something. So yeah, that's, that's what I would do if I could return. <laughs> you would work at it a little bit harder. <laughs> I would throw myself into it and embarrass myself mm -hmm. more. I would make a fool of myself constantly. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously art is a sort of a performance too. It's just kind of, it's frozen, right? It's sort of like, it's something that we've, we all have our sketchbooks and we draw and we draw and draw. And then comic is kind of the, the performance, so to speak. But it is kind of a frozen performance, you know, and it, it is it is embodied in the sense that you do have to do something physically. What I'm trying to get at is, you know, you're talking about performance and and music as these kind of embodied things where your body has to move through space and, and it becomes something that you do physically and you feel that physicality of, of the act. What you are, you, that you not just do, but you are that thing in that right. moment. Do you ever get that when you're drawing? Yeah, but it's not complete. Is it too, is it just too constrained? It's quite a pleasure and it can be visceral, but it's such a private pleasure. It's like the pleasure of eating, <laughs> like eating is nice, but it's not, not one of the highest pleasures. I mean, it's probably more when it's good, it's better than eating, but it's, what do you call it? It is sublimation. Mm -hmm. I would also argue that sublimation is just part of art in general, whether you're a musician or a performer or a cartoonist. Uh, I, you have to, on some level... I just feel like being a performer, sublimation has got to be more ecstatic. <laughs> <laughs> One thing is to compare like a performance like in a film or something like that, where, you know, I think a lot of actors hmm. would say there are moments where, you know, they're kind of embody the role and they're kind of part of it. But then there's also like the dull moments where just, they have to do a, a scene over and over and over again. And they have to kind of be someone like in a, in a, in a kind of a dull way, you know, a lot of repetition as well. Well, there's a lot of dullness with drawing. You know what I want would be, okay. In my next, <laughs> in my, in my eternal return is an opera singer because for an opera singer, your own, body is the instrument so the sublimation is just so much more intimate altogether mm. you know like everything is brought together mm. i can see that i can see that i mean you know you you still have to you still have to like really train your body right you have to still train it and make it do the things that an opera singer can do yeah i mean of course i would train <laughs> no i know i'm just i'm just making a comparison of there is something there's something to that 
but there's also, you know, there's also a lot of control. You have to, you have to like, you know, there's a lot of things you have to do. Are you saying that cartooning doesn't require no, years does, and it years? Does. It does. What I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, there's not, the, to me, there's not that much difference between like becoming an opera singer versus becoming a cartoonist. They both require a lot of training and a lot of control, just in very different ways. But with opera singers, you feel your whole body vibrating mm-hmm. with your own voice. It's all there together in time and you're enjoying it and the audience is enjoying it and there's like this ecstatic union of like the moment whereas comics you draw a thing and it takes a lot of time and then you're done and it's this thing on the page and then you pass it along into the world and it goes in the printer and or in the internet and people read it and their eyes they translate it into their brains and then they like their brains have to figure out what it means and everything and then there's no ecstasy there's no if you produce a voice if you produce a sound your body is vibrating but then also the other person is vibrating at the same time because they're they're catching the the waves of of the sound into their ears and it's gotta be so much better (laughs) uh well we should you know we should get an opera singer on here and talk about this this would be really interesting (laughs) i mean i don't think that where i grew up i don't think there was any any way for me to have had any opera lessons let let alone even to hear an opera Mm. Do you ever watch uh, reaction videos on YouTube? Like when people react to songs and things? No. <laughs> I was watching for a while, uh, a couple of years ago, I, I stumbled on this video. Um, it's this uh, singer from Kazakhstan, Dimash. And he's got this really incredible vo- vocal range. He can go very deep and he can go really, really high, like very, you know, opera high. And he can do this within, you know, just a few bars of a song. And... There's this famous video of him singing this French song um, for it was some some Chinese um, TV contest, you know, where, where a bunch of people are singing kind of like um, you've got talent or whatever, those kinds of those kinds of shows. And it's amazing just to kind of watch the audience. Like it's almost more fun to watch the audience just like gasping at like certain certain ver- you know, phrases and verses where he just do, where he just does it and he just does it so effortlessly, just like goes from this low to this very high high and the audience just is just sitting there like slack jawed or just applauding just in ecstasy made me also think of elvis fans like freaking out and and there is there is this like very kind of ecstatic uh thing to music um that that maybe comics definitely don't have that the comics have a little bit more reflective thing which i think you know for me this is good because i like i that's why i think of comics as closer to sort of you know philosophy literature as something contemplative yeah where you communicate something more precisely, maybe raw talent or raw ability. You know, you almost like directly show that you are able to do a certain thing vocally by just doing mm-hmm. it. I don't know. There's this whole genre of videos now where people just watch some song and they react to it, you know? Why is that? The, I mean, the idea of watching somebody react to something sounds very boring to me. <laughs> I know. I thought so too. And then I was like, really, I couldn't stop watching. I don't know. It's almost like, you you know, there is, I think there is, um, you know, there's a philosopher called uh, Girard. He has this whole idea of like mimetic culture um, where, where we we just essentially like we, we don't even desire anything ourselves. We only desire it once someone else desires it. So like if you tell me that, hey, I'm really interested in, you know, I, I really I bought this new watch or something like that um, and it's really cool. And then all of a sudden I want that watch, you know. 
So, so he's got this whole mimetic theory of, of culture where, where we just essentially ref, keep reflecting back at each other um, and, and we create desire and we create, we create culture kind of through these reflections. So I think these videos are a way to sort of like confirm to ourselves that this, we like this thing. Like when we hear it in isolation, sometimes it's, it's just kind of, it may be difficult to even form an opinion of this thing. But when we see someone else reacting to it, like, wow, this was amazing. Then we're like, yeah, yeah, I thought so too. I, it was amazing. It really is amazing. All this is also enmeshed with like scapegoating, how we like scapegoat people for for bad things. We kind of like create these these projections um, and, you know, which which trials were are part of this. And, um, you know, anytime we sort of like try to excommunicate someone or whatever, like for 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 bad things, we sort of it's, it's essentially this kind of mimetic reflection mechanism mm -hmm. that always kind of involves like it's like a tripartite thing like there's the the you and me um and then there's like the third party that we project things onto you know um and these videos are kind of a you know just a kind of a really mundane sort of expression of that like if you see okay you're alone at night and you see this amazing big shooting star going across the, the sky and it's pretty amazing if you're alone but if you're with somebody else and you're you're like did you see that <laughs> like that's got to be and then, or like and then you go to see somebody else and you're like I just saw this amazing thing but like you're trying to share that feeling but it doesn't really work when you're yeah and this is kind of the YouTube substitute you know we're all alone already we're like such an atomized society yeah. where we're just sitting alone watching things on our phones or whatever yeah, that's why I like to listen to podcasts. <laughs> Some part of my brain is being tricked into thinking I'm at like a dinner party with really smart people or something. Just eavesdropping in a great conversation. But like, they're yeah, they're so smart <laughs> <laughs> that I'm like, I'm smart enough to know not to try to join the conversation. <laughs> but um, on the converse side about scapegoating, that's very interesting too, because I do see that happens very easily. I, I remember when I was young and lived in group houses, there'd usually be like one person would be the problem person and everybody would sort of gang up on them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, they were the kind of, they were the scapegoat. They were the receptacle and and, you know, what's interesting about Gerard is like he, you know, this theory of scapegoating is that it can never happen. We we sort of we learn that we do it and then we can't do it the same way again. But then it comes up in a new way. Let's say the witch trials happened. And a lot of times people just realize like, oh, you know what? This was actually a bad thing. We yeah. shouldn't be doing that anymore. Like this is uh, yeah. a bad thing. But then it just comes up in a new way, in some new, different fashion. So, you know, like I guess in in, uh, in like, uh, you know, in Germany, the Jews became the scapegoats, you know? So like every at every sort of level in history, the scapegoating mechanism has to be different. So we don't realize that we're doing it. You know what I mean? It always has to be some kind of uh, different thing. So there's something in us that is sort of trained to have to have an enemy. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, I, I definitely think that humans have a kind of, um, there's a tribal kind of element to humans. So we appreciate ugliness together in a similar way we appreciate beauty. Yeah, yeah. And they're both, they're both mimetic in the sense that we, we want the same things that other people want. We also hate the things that other people hate. <laughs> but what about the fact that this is just like, we clearly have our own desires and our own distastes. 
I still have my own t- like I like some things that everybody likes and I dislike some things that everybody yeah, likes. Like I, like I said, I mean I don't think I don't think it's the mimesis doesn't have to result in complete monoculture, you know what I mean? Because like because we are still kind of our little families, tribes and groups and those groups are informing each other in a way that maybe other groups are not informing each other. With sort of the advent of popular media, popular culture, I think there's been a lot kind of a flattening of difference a little bit. You know, there's a there's mm-hmm. like um I think local scenes are a lot more similar now than they used to be. Um there used to be a lot more difference between different artistic pockets around the world whereas now there's kind of a, a global culture that sort of flattens that a little bit. That doesn't mean there still aren't differences between them. But there is a lot less differences with with the internet. There's a lot more coalescing of scenes across borders. There's a certain, like let's say in comics, you know, you have you know a certain kind of kind of stylistic scene. I don't know where you know more abstract comics or something like that. You know, that's something that probably can't be sustained by you know maybe a local scene in one city, but maybe a hundred individuals from a diff- all over the the place can now coalesce into something, and then all of a sudden that just spreads in a different, very different way. I do, I do think we have our own, you know, we kind of refine these things and change some of that desire and change it based on, on our surroundings or whatever. And something, something brings us together in, in that, in that sense. Uh, but I wanted, you know, one, one more thing about your comics, you know, you know, the comic that I was, uh, that I was sort of most captivated by in, uh, on your Patreon here, the one where you're at the, at the doctor that's looking at your spine. Or you, you know, you guys are kind of talking about your back problems, and then, um, uh, and then you sort of take a walk, um, and then you end up in this cafe, and then there's really this nice drawing of the cafe. But it just made me think of about your comics in general, like as a kind of looking for patterns in your comics, and and it seems like the comics where you kind of do a lot of walking are, are a little bit like your happy comics, or or comics where you where you have profound ideas or something and then there's the comics where you're trapped in your apartment or in some situation or something and that's that, that's where like the neurotic parts come out and foreground the the unhappy you process the unhappy thoughts in those cases you know like it's a uh, it's really interesting <laughs> i didn't realize i was doing that being quarantined it's a very you got a very narrow margin of activity there's walking and then there's being in your apartment yeah. It brought Nietzsche to mind again because Nietzsche is one of the sort of yeah. the walking philosophers. There is a whole as long as you compare me to Nietzsche, <laughs> that's cool. Uh, you know, there is there is a whole you know there's a whole body of literature about uh, walking um, and thinking and how those two go hand in hand. How walking essentially you know sort of that act of like step 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 creates a kind of a pattern for you to get lost in allows your mind to sort of wander and and come up with ideas and Nietzsche when he was younger he was a you know he was a teacher and he was very sickly and couldn't deal with with being in this um, kind of confined academic place and ended up leaving and living in um in a more rural setting and uh and just would wonder you know just would wonder for hours and then eventually he was able to um you know to cure some of his ailments or whatever to just through walking and a lot of his you know most famous books were written essentially in the the act of walking 
And, uh, but this is something that, you know, this is something that gets written about a lot in, in other, in other places more, you know, more recently. Um, I don't know if you've ever read any Will Self novels. No. He's more of a writer of literature, but he also has this series of books called Psychogeography, where he just wanders around and kind of talks about whatever he's encountering. And one of his kind of funnest essays from that is him walking from London to New York. He starts from his house in London and then walks to the airport and has to actually like he he has to enter the airport by walking so that's something that's actually really difficult to do you know uh, there's no sidewalks to to the to to most airports then he gets on the airplane flies to new york and then he has to walk from the airport in new york to wherever he's staying the only part that's not walking is the flight cuz obviously he can't walk on the ocean there's something, yeah, with walking, I um, I do, I have all these different kind of meditations I try to incorporate into it. Like, I think so hard that sometimes I give myself a, a headache. Like, I, uh, I mean, I also try to meditate, which I think makes me think all the harder. <laughs> like, so I try to, like, focus on the bottoms of my feet or my breathing or even like what I see like I try to like pick an object to focus on and to sort of quiet my mind and in doing that this talky part of my brain just gets even louder so like trying not to think makes me think all the harder but I think doing that actually makes the quality of the thoughts clearer and better like this is where i get like my insights and my ideas from the tension between trying to quiet the mind down <laughs> and the mind really kicking up if i then i think there is some point where i just keep walking a lot and walking until like that fight sort of gets worn <laughs> out and then there's like a little bit of bliss or warmth or something I'm sure there's some physiological mechanism of like, you know, your body, your body is moving. So blood is pumping more efficiently throughout your veins. More of it is going into your brain and it kind of like creates like a clarifying moment that happens more easily maybe than when you're still and like kind of like planted and, and, and without moving, you know, I don't know, but I, I definitely think there's, there's, um, there's an interesting resonance between, between walking and thinking you know, and then I also, you know, personally, I also, I also think about space, like moving through space. And, mm -hmm. and there's kind of an interesting push and pull between like walking through familiar spaces where you can kind of almost tune them out because you know them really well. But then also when you hit a spot where you maybe take a different turn and you go through part of the neighborhood that you haven't walked through very often or whatever. Like I always imagine like Nietzsche walking through the woods, you know, I'm sure he probably had familiar paths. So he wouldn't have to like mm -hmm. think too much about getting lost or something like that. But then also, um, you know, occasionally wanting to get lost and, and like really have kind of a sublime moment with nature. <laughs> this practice kind of goes back probably to pre you know ancient times. Have you ever read The Situationists, the the guys from the 60s, like Guy Debord, um, the French Situationists? I have not. Um, Guy Debord is most famous for this book called Society of the Spectacle, um, uh, which is all about, you know, kind of societies of control and how we are under the thrall of, of the kind of constant spectacle. But he also invented the, I don't know if it was him specifically, but other situationists 
sort of created this practice of psycho psychogeography um, of walking through a city, thinking about it less in terms of going from point A to point B, but sort of uh, you know psychically following certain you know trying to kind of experience certain experiences or trying to trying to follow more like a psychic path through a city rather than a, a literal path. Like when I walk to New York, I definitely have there's like my the entire city is full of psychic geography. Like there's that bakery where I had that cannoli with that guy who commented on how I ate. <laughs> <laughs> there's that corner where I broke up with that guy. Like, unfortunately, it's a lot of really painful <laughs> memories. That's kind of like your own psychic geography right it's in a sense it's like your kind of memory like your extended memory of new york so those are your moments that you remember but then there's also like i feel like there's there's kind of a psychic of the city you know where like there's a district that has a kind of energy and there's another district that has a different kind of energy so like you go to a place where it's like oh this is where you know this is you know and like in uh, you know in america maybe that doesn't happen but like you know in, in in europe a lot of cities will have like a red light district like that has a really different energy than you know than than going um walking along a canal with a, where a bunch of tourists go you know so or, or versus yeah. another another area where like oh here is like you know, more of a shopping district, you know, and, and each, each of these things have a kind of um, a little bit of a different kind of psychic energy. Times Square once was a very seedy place and now it is terribly ostentatious, annoying place. But in a way, you could say that it has the same kind of seediness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just from a very different sort of perspective. You will want to avoid Times Square, but for different reasons now. And I'm thinking about uh, in San Francisco um, on 16th Street and Mission. San Francisco is like totally gentrified. But for some reason, I lived on Mission Street for a long time. And um, no matter how many fancy buildings go up, that one corner on 16th and Mission is perennially disgusting and filled with drug dealers openly selling and just they cannot seem to gentrify that one single corner. It's like that place is cursed or something. But every time I go back, the entire city has changed. And yet that one corner, it just never changes. It has a weird smell and a weird vibe. And it's like it feels deeper than even the drug dealers hanging out. I'm sure it's some kind of, you know, I don't know if maybe it's not psychic residue, but it's almost like um, there's probably a kind of a pretty deeply embedded network of people. Like if, you know, if, let's say take drug dealers for for an example here, where people for, for decades were coming to this corner to, to get drugs or whatever. So then it's just kind of baked into the kind of the memory of the city and anybody new that's moving in there and wants to get drugs probably starts there on some level. You know what I mean? There has to be some kind of nexus that gets constantly reinforced. It doesn't matter really what's there um, in terms of, you know, whether that there's a bodega there now or some fancy, you know, whatever, um, uh, Apple store or whatever. It would have to be like very, very ostentatiously policed to get rid of that. Like it would, there would have to probably be like armed guards on the corner to like prevent that from happening. And they would probably have to happen for like an extended period of time for people to to abandon this corner and go to some other corner. I just kind of imagine it forming that way, you know, that there like that there's these corners, these nexuses inside of uh inside of cities where the repeated activity happens. Or there was some ancient burial ground. I mean it could be that too. <laughs> we ever 
decide on our closing. <laughs> uh, what is the opposite of this salutation? <laughs> see you later. See ya. See ya. Later, see ya. Wouldn't want to see ya. <laughs> stop copying me. <laughs> <laughs> stop copying me. We can probably stop. No, you don't hang up. <laughs> you hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, I'm gonna stop recording. <laughs> Thank you.